some listener emails on episode 332 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I don't know why I was going to say progress. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. We've, We've got a few Patreon supporters to thank Shane because it's been a few weeks since we've gotten together to record. Yeah, we, we stacked up a bunch of episodes. Uh, you know, we, we instead of normally we record two a week and then we release them, but then we were recording like four a week so that, uh, we could accommodate some vacation. You were away and I think I maybe was unavailable and, and as such, we got a little bit behind on Patreon supporter. Thanks. But, uh, it looks like we have three to thank three new Patreon supporters to thank, um, Richard, Andrew and Brigham. Uh, really appreciate your support. And as always, we thank all of our Patreon supporters. We really do uh, appreciate that. And it helps keep the podcast going as we cover our expenses that way. So thank you. Yeah, we can't do the show without the listeners. And uh, we've had lots of emails from listeners as well. And I think it is, it's really nice to include the stuff that people send to us because I think it is so interesting one of the ones that that I received, I was out in Ontario. Uh, Shane, I'm I'm not sure though. Have have you been out uh, doing any observing in the past few weeks since we last spoke, or not that much at night? Uh, I've done a lot of solar sessions. Okay. Uh, the sun has just been so amazing to observe lately. In mm. fact, today, uh, so today is uh, June fourth. Um, so you know this will probably release on June seventh or eighth or something like that. But today the sunspot groupings are incredible. Um, and there's an enormous sunspot, right? Uh, like pointed kind of right at earth right now. Okay. Um, So tons of detail there. Um, but not so much at night, Chris, the, uh, the, the, the days are getting so long that it's not even really, you know, dark enough to do in any backyard observing till Mm -hmm. around 10 or 10 30. And normally my, you know, my bedtime is about 10 o'clock for for a work night. So, uh, I start running into these collisions this time of the year, um, where I have to determine if I want to be a little sleepy at work the next day so that I can observe or just get a good night's sleep. Um, and then the other side of it is we actually haven't had as many clear nights as I would have hoped for. You know, we've, uh, kind of, a what's becoming a traditional thing is, is, uh, smoke entering the, the skies from various forest fires. So that is happening, although not nearly as bad as it has been previous years. Um, and then, uh, just cloudiness, uh, due to stormy weather. And, and oh yeah, like so. we've, we've had a lot of rain out here. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of rain it's, and it's unfortunate because I mean, things couldn't be more moist here. Um, and yet in the North where the fires are burning, things couldn't be drier. So mm-hmm. I really just kind of wish this, uh, these systems would stop dumping rain on us where it's, it's just not needed anymore and, uh, and head up North. I think, I think they were on the way there yesterday. So fingers crossed that system, uh, hits the fires because I don't know if it would put it out, but it would put a pretty big dent in the, uh, in the burning that's going on up there. Yeah, exactly. How about you? Have you been able to observe? I, I haven't. I went to Ontario for uh, just about two weeks and couldn't find anybody nearby where I was to go observing. And then I ended up getting like a super mild cold as well. It just wasn't that bad. Just And then, um, yeah, the weather was spectacular, though. though. It was just totally clear every day, except for, I think, maybe two days out of the 
uh, out of the time I was there were, were actually going to be pretty good for observing. And the one night that I would have been able to go observing because I was hanging out with all my old observing friends. And we said, if it's going to be good that night, we'll go observing. Uh, that was the only other night. There was one night it rained. And then there was this other night about a week later, a few days later. And it wasn't any good. It was super milky that night. You could uh, just scarcely see Venus through the clouds. We did debate it, but uh, but we didn't go out. But I did uh, I did have a chance to to sit down and have, have dinner with uh, a bunch of my old and new observing friends like... Uh, was able to sit down with uh, Peter and Clark and a whole pile of other people. And uh, it was really nice to meet Michael Wright, who's who's been a frequent uh, correspondent uh, uh, the past while for the podcast. And uh, Trevor, who's the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo Centre president, it was really nice to sit down and, and actually meet those folks uh, together in person. And uh, and then as well, the my, my older observing friends. Uh, and then Clark, I went out for coffee with the next day because he and I uh, were pretty much like observing buddies uh, back in those days where we did an awful lot of observing together and he uh, is quite involved in the history of astronomy and sent me this I put it in the show notes it's pretty cool it's a painting of the I think it's the 18, yeah, 1896 solar eclipse from Sweden and this is by uh, William Blair Bruce and uh, really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really captures that essence of the, um, uh, well, the totality moment where the moon is blocking out just about all of the sunlight, and but you get these spurious sort of flashes of sun, uh, you know, kind of coming out from the edges of the, the mm-hmm. uh, moon. It, it's quite stunning, actually, how well that's captured. Yeah, and the way the way this came about is we were chatting about the upcoming April eighth uh, solar eclipse next year, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, I wanted to see it, and I actually said I, I want to sketch it or draw it or whatever. And he said, oh, I got something to show you, and then sent me uh, this. So thanks, thanks to Clark for that. I thought I got a mosquito here, so if you hear me clapping my hands, it's not a joyous celebration of being home in Saskatchewan, uh, or maybe it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, the other thing that we got was uh, an email that uh, that Marie sent sent to me, <laughs> but it was really directed towards you. Yeah, and uh, I'm so thankful for this email. Um, if if listeners remember, I, I don't recall the episode number, but this is probably what a few months ago at least. Um, I had mentioned that I was observing the moon. And I came across uh, what I thought was a, a clear obscure effect that I wasn't familiar with, but I described it as like a hamburger <laughs> that it had like multiple layers. There would be like kind of a line of like kind of the, you know, illuminated bright gray of the moon, then dark, then another gray, then dark, then another gray, then dark sort of thing. And, and there was a number of these, but I, I didn't know what it was. And I, I did a you know, some brief internet searching, trying to find out what it might be and was unsuccessful. But uh, Marie wrote, uh, should I read this one? Chris, yeah, go or? for it. Okay. Yeah. So she said, hi, Chris, uh, Ellen and I were discussing a clear obscure effect on the moon called Zeno's steps this morning. Uh, when I found a picture, I thought of the hamburger that Shane mentioned and wondered if this might be it. It will apparently be visible on the morning of June the 5th, although I'm not sure what will be the best time to see it. So Chris, upon receiving this email, uh, I did a, an internet image search on, you know, moon Zeno's steps 
And 100%, yeah, that is what I saw. Mm. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Marie. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, now I, now I know. And I definitely would like to observe that one again. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. I, I think it might even be visible like tonight or tomorrow sometime. So okay. I think it I think it is set to be clear, Shane. So if if I'm able to, I'm gonna try to go and and take a peek at this one. So yeah. pretty pretty interesting. I, I think that's that is one of the benefits that you and I receive from doing the show is that typically we, we might uh run over something like this and just just mention it in passing to each other. And then, um, you know, it sort of gets lost in our annals of observations, but uh, it's really cool when a listener kind of picks up on that and then sort of thinks about uh, what we've talked about and, and what they're observing and then gets back to us with an identification of an object we might otherwise have just sort of uh, passed over and, and wish we had had dug into, but then forgotten. Because now looking at this, I can see why this caught your attention. Uh, yeah. It, it does look like... Uh, sort of three almost like curving strikes or like hamburger a hamburger patty between two buns i guess and uh really a neat neat effect i i really want to take a peek at this now well and i would like to observe this over like a, a whole night to see how it changes with mm. the angle of the sun because when i observed it the like sorry sorry to the listeners uh we'll try to describe this as best we can we have a photo of it on our screens right now um so you see these steps or the hamburger whatever you like to call it and then to the left of that is sort of a much larger much brighter illuminated part of a crater mm -hmm. and when i observed i don't recall that part standing out uh, as much as it shows in this photo. Mm. So I'm, I'm not sure, you know, with these clear obscure effects, they really do change and evolve, uh, over minutes and hours as the sun angle changes and the shadows change. So this is one I would really like to see at different points, um, mm -hmm. to see how it changes. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this one now as well. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah it would have been yeah. nice to, to meet up with Marie when I was in Kitchener-Waterloo as well. We just ended up, uh, I had hoped to spend like several more days in Waterloo, but uh, unfortunately I just ended up there for a couple nights really, but mm -hmm. uh, was lucky enough just that uh, the few people that still remember me were able to track me down. So it's all good. <laughs> um, Jim wrote us, this was cool. We talked about Mars passing through M44 and had a, had a few emails on this. He sent us a image of Mars passing through mm -hmm. M44, the uh, open cluster there in Cancer, one of the best open clusters in, in the nighttime sky, if you ask me. Um, and I really appreciate this because our weather hasn't been good. And I think it's now out of M44. I think last night was the last night and we had yet more thunderstorm showers. So uh, there wasn't any chance of me seeing it. So thanks so much for sending it along, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful image. Um, and like you say, it is one of the nicest open clusters in the night sky. And, and it's always neat when you can catch a planet going through something like that. Bill Weir sent us a set of sketches of the same event, which occurred, I think he said 17 years ago where Saturn and Mars were in M44 as well. And he, he sent us a series of sketches as uh, Saturn hovered in the background, like an alien craft, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I like that set of sketches showing Saturn and the Mars progressing through the, uh, M44. Yeah. Very uh, neat. Rich yeah. Yeah. Really neat. Richard got in touch and said, uh, 
he, he wrote to me and said, I was gratified to hear you sing the praises of the Nagular 22 Type 4. I hardly use any other eyepiece. I do a lot of outreach. So the generous eye relief makes it an easy eyepiece for novice observers. And Richard is uh, of Richard Drum, the astronomy bum editor of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. And that's pretty cool because we put out some episodes on the 365 days of the podcast every month. So that's really neat to have somebody working on the show, listening to our show. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And we really appreciate the 365 days of astronomy podcast. Uh, I think a number of our listeners probably discovered us through that means uh, because they're sort of an aggregate of a number of different astronomy podcasts. So you know, if if you don't know of this one, uh, and you like astronomy, and you, you probably do if you're listening to us, <laughs> you should check out 365 Days of Astronomy because uh, they have a lot of varying topics. It's not just mm-hmm. one podcast. It's like I say, it's an aggregate of multiple podcasts that contribute yeah. every month. Yeah, it's a bit of a hub there and yeah. a great way to discover uh, different podcasts related to astronomy. And then he also works uh, as the editor on the Astronomy Cast podcast, which is also one of the ones that uh, I personally listen to. Yeah, it's um, a great one. Yeah, yeah, frequently enough. I remember when they brought out all the all the episodes, they were trying to do one, I think a new one each day. I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty ambitious for 2009. And then they've more or less kept going. And I always was so, uh, I always really admired the folks for, for bringing us the 365 days of astronomy. So it was pretty cool to have an email from somebody who worked on the show. Mm-hmm. Alistair wrote us, he wrote us this, this email, Shane, do you want to just about, uh, star charts and, and such, do you want to take a read of this one? Yeah, for sure. So Alistair said, hi, Chris, uh, uh, hi, Chris and Shane, uh, after a long hiatus from hardcore visual observing, I've been doing more thanks to the re-inspiration of your podcasts and Berta Beltran's encouragement. Uh, supernova IXF in M101 has been great to see from the suburbs, even in moonlight in an eight inch daub. Um, and this is really fascinating, Chris. I really enjoyed this. So, um, he goes on to say a star chart technique. You did not mention, uh, that I would call out or that I would call custom printouts, uh, which I used, uh, when doing variable star estimates and hunting singular objects, instead of heaving a big or heavy star chart near the eyepiece. I would beforehand print out one or two sheets of paper, uh, a wide angle one showing part of the unaided eye uh, at constellation scale, and then a close up, uh, no more than one degree across. Uh, sometimes a third super close up if the object was faint and buried deep in the Milky Way. Uh, I could easily hold these up to the next, or up next to the finder and eyepiece with the correct orientation. For my daub newt, that would be north down, and then I would uh, tilt it to match the orientation on the unaided sky. So if I was looking south-southeast, I would tilt the chart about 20 degrees from vertical to where the RA line in the sky would be. Bam, the view in the eyepiece matches. No climbing uh, up and down a ladder. Uh, for listeners working on the Messiers, uh, look for Roger Fell's Messier Telescopic Companion. It's a free PDF download. On one page, he has a, tel- a Telrad chart to show where it is in the constellation. Then for both upside down and flipped configurations, a field six degrees across, typically for a finder, and then another field one degree across, typically for a low power view. Uh, there's a, a space to write down comments. And of course you can draw a sketch directly on the one degree field chart. 
Uh, that's how I tracked down the supernova from the suburbs, just following the star patterns at the eyepiece. Uh, no surprise to experienced observers, the galaxy itself was invisible, but the supernova was modestly easy at 100 times mag magnification. Uh, no, sorry, 100 times at magnitude 10.6. Um, and even uh, easy at low power on a more transparent night, regards Alistair. So I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I really like the the suggestion of the two star charts, you know, kind mm -hmm. of the the naked eye one to get you in the right area, and then a little more detailed charts to uh, either find the object or sort of uh, get a uh, maybe a little insight into what you might see uh, with a, you know, a view through the telescope. Yeah, I've used that technique of printing off like those singular charts as well in the past. Very handy, very handy. Thanks, mm -hmm. Alistair. Really appreciate that. Alistair made another, he made a suggestion for a show, Shane, I'm not sure if you saw it, mm -hmm. was to do one on astronomical weather or, or yeah. weather for astronomy. I really want to do that one sometime. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I think that would be good. Chris wrote us an email. Uh, he writes... Chris and Shane, listening to a solar eclipse, eclipse expedition as I go about my home duties for the day and recall the podcast about wooden piers, I thought I would show you my wooden pier and share with you my thought processes for this mount. I have had my little Takahashi FC50 mounted on a lightweight aluminum tripod with an Aldaz mount, the Stellarview M1, for several years, which makes for quick, easy-to-use telescope packages. Ultimately, I could mount it on a Burlaback 3025 tripod with a Takahashi Teagle Space Patrol 2 mount when using it in planetary mode. The planetary mode, while nice for parking myself at the eyepiece for a long time to leisurely gander at the planets or the moon, did take up a little more setup time. I found myself always grabbing the Aldaz setup for ease of use. Something I think you'll understand is that in addition to the FC50 being optically excellent, I also love the look of the instrument it that is such a beautiful little telescope eh? it's a 50 millimeter mm -hmm. takahashi yeah yeah it's uh it is beautiful um it it, it just like it resembles uh, a lot of the refractors it's just it's miniature yeah very nice little telescope i think it's like f8 or something i've always thought that'd be a nice one to have in the I don't know. It's just pretty. I just like looking mm -hmm. at it. The Agreed. aluminum tripod was too utilitarian, although easy to use. The Burlaback, while beautiful, could be a little involved in setting up. And for some reason, just didn't have what I had in mind. In my mind's eye, I started picturing how my tiny optical aid would appear on an appropriately sized pier, which is interesting because when we think of piers, we think about using larger and larger instruments and mounts while well, he's actually thinking of using a pier for a small instrument with a smaller mount. Mm -hmm. He says, I religiously pursued eBay, Cloudy Nights, Astromart, and a Japanese site called Jouse. Takahashi piers seem to be few and far between. And for what, and for that matter, any piers were not too plentiful. All that I was seeing were too large for my small instrument. Having a search on Burlaback in eBay, this tripod showed up, which is more of like a three-legged plus pier area. As you can see above in the photos, I've spent several days disassembling it, sanding it, varnishing the riser tube, and painting the lower assembly with Takahashi white and mint green highlights. 
midway in weight between the aluminum tripod and the Burlaback 3025. I think this wooden pure tripod is going to be my most used setup at home. That is really cool. I quite like it. Well, it's beautiful. Um, that tripod is, is, well, I guess pure, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, I've never seen anything like that. Um, it was new to me. Yeah. I mean, I've seen aspects of these sort of things before, but it has, it looks like it has a column that raises and lowers Yeah. in, in addition to what looks like, uh, there's some modern aluminum tripods or steel tripods. You can get that kind of look like the base of it, but this is just like such a miniature setup, you know, considering it's only a 50 millimeter telescope. It, it's really, really cool. I really like it a lot. Yeah. And, and that, a uh, little Takahashi mount for tracking um, is something I've had my eye on for a long time. I've just never been super aggressive uh, when the auctions come up. Uh, one day, I think I might own that one, but uh, uh, it's great to see it in photos and everything I've read about its performance is nothing short of great. An email from, oh, I have this mosquito here. Sorry. <laughs> An email from Felipe in Brazil. And uh, he sent me along some photos. He he recently welcomed, uh, he and his wife welcomed the, their son into the world, which is super exciting. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, yeah, congratulations to him. And he uh, he was at home for a while, of course, but then he's he's had to go back out into the field for work, which the field being, uh, you know, the, the operative word here, because he uh, goes out and does audits for uh, coffee plantations and sustainable coffee development in Brazil, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. And he's been listening to our podcast. He's got a lot of driving to do. He says, I have to thank you, Shane, Robert, Berta, Eric, and Dave. Uh, you were a great company during the 900-kilometer drive here. And I think the roads that he was driving on are, are pretty rough. He says, yesterday, I saw Venus next to the moon. I even stopped by a dam to take a look. Today, I started driving at 7 a.m. and arrived at 5 p.m. But the place is amazing, and there's some light pollution, but... Uh, just very few lights from the local neighbors. He had some great binocular views and he took his camera with him and uh, he sent us along a, a few photos. I put one in the notes showing the uh, coal sack and the Edocrina area, but he also sent us some shots of the uh, Omega Centauri cluster and some other things. Uh, pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice photos. Love getting those Southern hemispheric photos where I imagine like Edocrina is pretty much going overhead or something like that. It must be spectacular. I can only dream. Uh, Julian wrote us. He hit a question, Shane. This is more, and I put this in because I'm hoping you can help out with this. I didn't, I didn't answer his question. He's been also been observing the sun and uh, Julian does paintings of the sun. So he'll do some sketches. He sent mm-hmm. me those and then he'll refine those into some, uh, some actual artwork paintings that are really, really neat to see. Uh, He wrote the theoretical max magnification I am supposed to get with my 81 millimeter scope is 162. However, with the three to six millimeter zoom, I get a perfectly sharp image at 186 X using a three millimeter setting. And he goes on to say, how is it possible that I got a sharp image with uh, the three millimeter I have and it far exceeded the theoretical limits of the scope. Then he goes on to write, this is not the case with my LS60 hydrogen alpha scope at three millimeters. The image uh, in this scope is not as sharp. Thanks for letting me know why I can get way beyond the max in the 81 millimeter scope, but not the smaller scope. 
So she, why, so this is for solar observing, I, I think. So why might somebody be able to use more power in a white light telescope than in a hydrogen alpha telescope? Well, you know, you know. I would, I would speculate on this one that it, if we just ignore even, you know, the, the H alpha versus white light, okay. um, you know, I ma like magnification limits are typically just an indicator of your optical quality. Mm -hmm. Um, so my suspicion is that the, the light path and the lenses and filters and everything going on with white light and the 81 millimeter are just of a higher quality, uh, you know, just, just better produced and, most telescopes today now are all good. It's just some are great. And the great ones um, allow you to really push those theoretical limits and exceed them and often have really good results. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's some of the reason why people will pay more money for, say, uh, like a big CFF refractor versus a Skywatcher refractor. Mm -hmm. uh, the CFF will likely be assured of a high quality or a really high quality. Whereas a sky watcher, it might be good to great. You just don't know because, uh, the, the, um, the attention to those details sometimes aren't always there for consistency. So that's my theory here. Um, the other thing that I would say is that H alpha is probably, I don't know, in, in my opinion, and, and, you know, some folks might argue with me on this one. H alpha is maybe the most high contrast observing you can do. Mm -hmm. There is so much detail, uh, fine detail, uh, color variations in terms oh. I shouldn't say color, but brightness variations. Oh, okay. So there's, there's a lot going on there that make things, um, a little more challenging and, you know, pushing, pushing the limits of magnification on H alpha rarely work for me. Um, you know, I find with my H alpha, less power is better all of the time. Always, mm -hmm. uh, rarely do I put much power in unless I want to really blow up like a prominence. But mm -hmm. even then when I, when the prominence gets bigger, but I feel like I see less because the quality deteriorates. Um, oh, so maybe okay. there's something else going on with hydrogen alpha that restricts yeah. your ability to use uh, higher mm. powers. You know, maybe the other thing I'll say is that with um, with hydrogen alpha, you have a blocking filter uh, in the diagonal and they range in size from six millimeters to 10 millimeters and bigger than that too, uh, and maybe even smaller than that. And when you're using high power, you're, you're restricting the light yet again. So maybe it's also a case you're just not getting enough light to your eye using the high power, uh, maybe with a smaller blocking filter. I'm just speculating mm -hmm. again. Um, but yeah, for me, hydrogen alpha, um, I'm using, um, what's my focal length? 400 millimeter focal length. And I rarely will go above a 12 millimeter eyepiece, mm -hmm. um, or I should say below. Yep. I often will observe at 18 to 25 millimeters. Uh, I just find that that's the best views for me with H alpha. It's almost like, uh, like what you're saying. And I'm really glad you answered this because I, I, I really don't observe the sun very much at all to, to know, but just from what you're describing here almost sounds similar to like Jupiter, like an extreme case of that, where mm -hmm. there, there's, there's so much rich detail that once you do start running that power, you, you end up losing that detail simply because of the nature of the size of the object and the size of those features. And then 
when you're when you are looking at so many details, so much fine detail, sometimes you just don't need as much power. Um, anyway, I think I think you've done a good job answering that. I'm not going to try to summarize it too much, but that that's starting to make more sense to me now. I, I really didn't have an answer for Julian, and I thought and it's a pretty good question, maybe to put on the show, and I'd be mm. curious to hear what other people have to say. Yeah, and and good comparison to Jupiter. It is very similar to that. Um, and I will like on my solar observing setup, it's a T mount. So I have hydrogen alpha on one side and white light on the other. And uh all of the time I will use more power on the white light. Um, and it just takes it better. Um, and and with sunspot detail, you really do uh want more magnification and um uh, I don't know. White light just seems to accept that better. The the thing that is maybe the most limiting about any solar observing is that the seeing during the daytime sometimes isn't as good. Uh, you know, once once the heat oh, yeah. uh, starts to radiate, like heat up the ground and it starts radiating up and radiate. You know, if you're observing in your backyard and you have neighbors' roofs close by, they start radiating heat. Right. And uh, sometimes your seeing just isn't that great. Uh, I find solar observing is best uh, in the earlier morning uh, before things really have a chance to heat up. And uh, at those times, I can usually push the power a little bit more. Did you see, I put one in, he sent me a whole pile. I should, should, again, I wish we had a better place for keeping all this stuff, but I sent you the one um, painting that uh, the draft painting that he had sent. Didn't know if you did a chance to look at that or not. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, He does a great job to capture some of the filaments, you know, that there's a kind of some black lines there on the Mm. surface, uh, some of the prominences, but what I really, really like is it just captures kind of the beautiful chaos of the sun. The feel of uh, it, eh? Yeah, yeah, the and like, feel of it, yeah, and, and like the prominences are so strong, but yet there's like, uh, it almost looks like kind of gaseous material around them, and, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's like a, a collection of H alpha shots in this in this mm-hmm. painting, and it's it's quite stunning. Yeah, I really want to at some point in time, and I'm I'm hoping to maybe later this year is is get to uh, Toronto and then arrange to meet up with Julian, um, to see some of these in, in person. They're, mm-hmm. they're pretty big though. I remember saying, I remember asking him once like, how big is this stuff? And he sent me a shot. These paintings, I think many of them are quite large. <laughs> so oh, wow. I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. And I just, I really like that as well. Like you think about, you know, and, and these aren't necessarily done to portray, they're more in my, in my opinion, and, you know, I guess that's in a way what art is about to give you the, like the feeling of what you're looking at um not necessarily like depicting something uh in a certain way right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think that he's he's done that very well so i always i always like to see stuff like this and uh yeah i was asking if he's going to try to paint the solar eclipse on april 8th i'm really hoping that he does (laughs) i think that would be super cool oh yeah that would be amazing uh hopefully he has clear weather if he makes an an attempt on, on it yeah he doesn't have to go too far. I think I think there's a spot even in southern Ontario somewhere there where they can they they're on the path of totality. They get a minute of it or something, but it's a pretty long one, I think. But anyway. Yeah, right on. Anything else to add to this show, Shane? No, that's everything, Chris. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And thanks everybody for sending us emails. We we probably just oh, one other person I'm gonna mention is Michael Wright did send and show me in person his 
M101IXF supernova sketch, which was fantastic. Really appreciate that because I, I missed it just with my travels. And then I think it's fading out now. And I had several other people send us um, photos and sketches of, of their observations of this. So thank you to everybody for sending those in. Um, and thanks for all the emails and support people give us. We do really appreciate it. You can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>